Welcome to the Insights Podcast by UNSW Law Society. The production team would like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is made, and pay our respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. Today we are joined by Mayumi Hattori Martins, a Juris Doctor final year student and International Seantio Scholarship recipient at UNSW. Before coming to UNSW, Mayumi completed a Master of International Commercial Law at the University of Queensland, graduating at the top of the class of 2020 with a postgraduate scholarship from the T.C. Byrne School of Law. She is also admitted to practice in Brazil, having completed a Bachelor of Laws at the University of Sao Paulo with high distinction and the Academic Excellence Award. Mayumi is passionate about the legal aspects of digital innovation, renewable energy, and sustainable business solutions, and is currently a paralegal in the digital law group at Herbert Smith Freehills. Thank you, Mayumi, for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Wow, so what an impressive academic and professional background, and that isn't even half of it. So let's rewind a bit and chat about why you chose to study law. Um, I would say it's a combination of factors, actually. Uh, combination of my personality, skills, influence of my family, and also my environment. I'll say my personality because ever since I was a little kid, I was very argumentative and would not mind a good confrontation. So if my mom would ground me, I would be negotiating better, you know, lesser penalties. like. You're grounded for one month, and I'll be like, mm, grounded on what grounds? And what about two weeks and no dolls? So um, yeah, I was always, always been very um, trying to advocate for myself and others, and people would think that that would be a good characteristic of a lawyer. But also my skills, because I don't know when you go to school, people think, oh, you're good at social sciences, essay writing, what not, uh, become a lawyer. And that is connected also with the fact of the influence of my family and my environment. I do find my Korean law very fulfilling because I find that I found my ikigai, uh, which is this concept of, a, of the intersection of a Venn diagram, right, of what I like to do what I'm good at, what the world needs, and what the world is willing to pay for. So it's right in the middle. And I say that because I like, um, because it's just something that I'm curious about. I'm not saying that I always like what's, you know, reading a hundred pages judgment is not really that fun, but, you know, I'm curious about, I want to learn more about it. And so, so yeah, I don't think I had this depth of awareness when I was 17 years old making this choice, but definitely think on a hindsight that it was a good choice for me. Yeah, I really appreciate that you've delved into all the different aspects that that come into making a choice. So after graduating your LLB, you passed bar exam in Brazil, and then you admitted to practice. So did you work as a lawyer in Brazil before coming to Australia? I actually did not have the time. Um, Even before I graduated, 
I was already applying for a scholarship with the University of Queensland, so I wanted to go to Brisbane, mainly because of the weather. Sydney and Melbourne seemed too cold for me. Um, and but then the funny fact that they just wouldn't accept um, students that weren't graduated yet. So I even had to go. I, I'm coming. I'm from the countryside of Brazil, and then I had to. I heard that EQ, University of Queensland, representatives were coming to Sao Paulo, which is the capital. So I took a bus to go meet them and ask them to take a chance on me. Like, I know I haven't graduated yet, but can I please, um, can I please just, you know, give me a chance? I know I'm not eligible, but I think it comes from this persistency that um, I've always had. And I was lucky because, yeah, they, they um, assessed my application and then right after I graduated and even before I got my diploma, I was already here in Australia, UQ, um, doing my master's. Great. So you didn't work as a lawyer in Brazil and then you came to Australia to, to do a master's in UQ. Um, how is the Australian legal system different from the Brazilian system? Uh, it is completely different. I would say both in theory and in practice. Um, in theory, which we're just like a completely different system, right? We're a civil law system. So for me, coming to Australia, um, I found it really <sighs> intriguing how, you know, when I'm making a legal argument, I want base that legal statement on like a section in the legislation. No, it's actually like, oh, is this contract valid? It's actually based on what a judge in the UK said a hundred years ago. So that was just blew my mind. Um, so and it's definitely not like that in Brazil because we actually have more, the law is more codified as we would say. We do have, um, having said that, we do not, you know, abide to the doctrine of precedence like common law countries, but we have some aspects of common law, like we have summulas, what we call when it's um, when we follow the jurisprudence of our Suprema Corte, which is the highest court in Brazil. So it's um, different. We have some aspects of uh, common law, like the common law has some aspects of the civil law. Um, and just culturally, it's um, yeah, different. I would say people here are more disciplined <laughs> and that's where I fit in because I find myself a little bit more disciplined than uh, the Brazilian culture. Uh, very honest, there is these expectations that even lawyers, which in Brazil are supposed to be more, you know, cheeky, savvy, you know, like distort the truth here. It's more towards an integrity, which I find it's, it's nice, sometimes naive, but definitely the way you go. Yeah, and I think part of that also stems from the move from purely adversarial um, litigation to something that's a bit more cooperative. Yeah, that's 100% right. I uh, find it different for me because, you know, our system is completely, um, it is inquisitorial and, you know, more adversarial. We, I think, more confrontational, like Brazilians they don't mind confronting, like here in Australia people try to be more polite and, you know, avoid arguing, which is, I don't know, I'm completely opposite, so <laughs> it's, it's different, but always good to be more cooperative. 
Yeah, and I I think you have experience mooting in competitions um, in law school as well. Yeah. Did you do any moots in Brazil compared to um, in Australia? I did. Um, I did mooting also in other countries in Brazil for usually uh, UN moots, but they're also like a backup my law degree in Brazil, we would have like criminal law moots. Um, I was fun, very, very fun, um, just to practice the um, oral advocacy skills and um, just that, being creative with legal arguments. I think that's the most interesting part of the law. I don't mind taking the devil's advocate side. I think more challenging, the better. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then when you undertook a master's at UQ, is is that when you decided to move for a longer term to Australia or was that just you decided to move and finish your degree and then you might move back? Well, yeah, when I decided to start my master's at UQ, I did not know that I was going to end up staying in Brazil, in Australia. But um, then just being living here in Australia for some time, I realized that this was a better place to stay. Um, I would say just in terms of um, quality of life, safety, it's nice to walk on the streets and not feel afraid of, you know, someone robbing your phone or just being sexually harassed every single day in the streets in Brazil. So it's just better quality of life. Um, and this is something that, you know, you don't know until you have it. And having this here, I just found it really amazing and but I wouldn't stay in Australia if it wasn't for practicing law mm -hmm. and so because of practicing law you decided to do a JD right yeah that's right um so what it surprised is that it didn't matter on that I already had a five years law degree in Brazil and a master's at UQ I had to um do the Prisley 11 um, and then you could do this first 11 with no award courses, but because I'm an international student, so student, I wouldn't have the visa to do so. Um, so, and then there was an option to do the bachelor degree or a Juris Doctor. Um, so yeah, I ended up doing um, the Juris Doctor degree because it's the same master's level and then I would be able to um, have the, also the student visa to do so, um, and yeah, and then with the Jewish doctor, we finally able to practice as a solicitor in Australia. Yeah, and so why did you decide to choose UNSW as opposed to, say, doing a, a law degree at um, UQ? Uh, yeah, so um, unfortunately, in the University of Queensland, they don't have a Jewish doctor degree, uh -huh. and there are no other... Um, universities in Queensland that would have uh, offering JD and a good scholarship option. Mm -hmm. So because I finished my master's at UQ in August, July, August, um, I thought, okay, I can't apply to anywhere here in Queensland. I'll go check New South Wales because Melbourne is just too cold for me. And then uh, there was UNSW, so that was very, um, even though I don't not a fan of trimesters. It was great because it started in September, and so it's, I could just finish my master and start the Juris Doctor straight away. Um, and they had really good scholarships options, like the International Exchange Scholarship. So um, yeah, and then I had to move again, which 
was hard because I had finally settled in in Brisbane. You know, I had my friends already, had my partner there. Um, so it was hard to, you know, move again, but um, definitely worth the sacrifice to pursue a career in law that I want. So on the, on the topic of um, being an international student, I think the Australian job market can be a bit challenging to navigate. Um, so in, in the position of international students as opposed to domestic students, what has been your experience in this area? Um, just very challenging. <laughs> you, you got it. Um, yeah, just very challenging. And I think what I was most shocking for me was that the majority of the law firms, government jobs, they just wouldn't accept international students' applications. I just still don't understand because, you know, we do have the working rights. So for me, it's just really... Um, a type of discrimination because um, honestly um, I find that international students they have so much to add in terms of like a professional like just the courage to live in their comfort zone coming to a different culture and adapting adjusting to especially the language skills um, I know a lot of other international students like can, how challenging it can be especially in the law where language skills are so critical um, to just adapt to it and I'm very self-conscious of my English and having to you know always be in this uncomfortable zone but wanting to push yourself and get better and you know just just go over these um, obstacles and face adversities and I think that means a lot of a professional and I think that's what and any employer should be looking for. Um, so I really wish that international students were more valued for other things that they can bring um, rather than their citizenship status, right? Um, so yeah, I think for me, it was really hard at the start. Um, you know, the many <laughs> rejection letters, I would cry a lot. Um, it would be very devastating, especially considering that, you know, back in Brazil, it, it seemed like I would have a very good future. But then, yeah, just, I didn't want to stay here unless I could practice uh, law. So I think what I did was just, if there's any chance that international student coming from a developing country can make it, I don't know, to totally, uh, to a law firm, then I would do anything in my power to make it happen. Um, and I think I was very lucky because there are firms that do accept international students, HSF, as an example. But I wish it wasn't that hard for others as well. Um, just a lot to sacrifice already and making these obstacles make it even harder and not worth it. I mean, I know a lot of students that have the potential to be amazing lawyers but had to go back to their countries simply because they couldn't find a job or so much they could chance on them. Yeah and I can definitely see that international students have actually probably so much more um, experiences and skills that enrich their their professional portfolio um, than domestic students and it's a shame that that there are so many roadblocks um, for them to practice here and on the, on the point of your English, it's great. Oh, I, hope, I hope that you won't be self-conscious. Get better, but yeah. 
No. Please don't be self-conscious about that. You're doing great. And um, I mean, it's amazing that you can speak so many other different languages as well. So I think it's Portuguese, French, um, Spanish. Spanish, yeah. Yeah. And then Mandarin and Japanese as well. Yeah, I'm learning. So that's so many languages. (laughs) And that just adds to your skill portfolio. Very seriously, it's it's just amazing that you can do so much. And I hope that you won't be too self-conscious about your English because it's very very good thank you thank you i think yeah confidence is building confidence not just better english but also confidence that you know you don't have to be perfect my english doesn't have to be perfect to try to succeed in different areas i'm not going to have as good as an english that you know other domestic students have obviously it's not going to be as good but you know i might be better in other aspects i might like you said have a different experience in different areas have a different mindset um and then you know any place any um like company needs both like needs you know diversity and that's why i think they would really benefit from having more international students yeah um and let's talk a bit about your vacation clerkship at herbert smith three hills which turned into um you continuing on as a paralegal so what was your experience um in your clerkship and then being a paralegal uh, it's great um it's it's nice that it's really reassuring when for me it's i've been doing law for the past nine years so nine years of studying law and you'd be disappointed if you know i've done so hard study so hard and then not enjoy it but now it was it was fantastic so I rotating the commercial litigation team with um, one of the partners that is heavily involved in ESG litigation which I found oh, so interesting I, I still have my three rotations next year when I start my grad program definitely somewhere that I want to go back I also rotated in the TMT and um, IP corporate team. That was also like just amazing. Everyone, just fantastic. You have buddies assessing you, even though assessing, well, yeah, they're assessing, but also assisting. <laughs> um, so it, it just, yeah, it was really good because even though it was during um, COVID and we had to work from home, for at least a month, which was disheartening because the clerkship is supposed to be such an, an amazing experience and having that one month taken from us, it's it's saddening, but they made it very, still very nice because, you know, we still connect virtually and the buddies would just assist you um, so much every day. And yeah, no, it's fantastic. Um, and then I um, is continue as a paralegal in the digital law group, which is completely different to you know a practice group at HSF. It's not a practice group. It's actually this multidisciplinary group, global group. Actually, we work very closely with the London team, um, and. This is, yeah, I think this is where people get a bit confused. It's not a practice group, then what it is, it's actually a group of lawyers from different practice groups, right? And they are usually involved in the digital law. And when I say digital law, people also get confused. And what is digital law, right? And I think it can mean many things, but um, for the digital law group, um, what we do, it's... um, 
many things, but some of the things is that we do training opportunities on digital law and then also um, tough leadership, publishing articles, practical guidances, and then the digital transformation side. So we'll have these two um, parts of digital law. First, you know, you have the digital transformation side, which is commonly known as the legal tech side, where you use the technology to transform the way you provide the legal services. But there's also the emerging technology advisory work, where you advise clients on the issues of adopting this emerging technology. So digital law groups still does the work for this digital transformation side, which is developing smart legal contracts or other business transformation technologies such as TAR um, and other work that we can do conjunctly in connection with um, legal ops and alt. But then now we just went through this transformation where we have emerging tech group, which will do this client facing work, right, would be advising on the clients, oh, what's the legal issues arising from adopting um, this cryptocurrency, minting NFTs, or getting into the metaverse, right? Uh, but that it's not, that will also be lawyers from different practice groups. So when it comes to, um, I don't know, like relating to a dispute, that would be a commercial litigator if it's uh, in implementing the technologies, could be TMT, or if it's related to cryptocurrency, would be someone from the financial services regulation. So it's a group of lawyers from different practice groups advising clients on this technology. So yeah, there's a little bit um, confusion in this area, but it's definitely a very um, uncertain, um, still not properly regulated, and that's why it's, uh, I find yeah, very interesting. Yeah, so it definitely would be exciting because it's such an emerging area and, yeah. and you're working in it as it evolves. So you see all the different things, um, whereas if you're in an established area of law, you just come in and you have to learn everything from scratch. Um, or Well, not from scratch, but you would learn everything as it is, yeah. um, as it is already structured like that. Exactly. But then because it's an emerging area, then of course everyone is learning at the same time. So mm-hmm. I can see how that would be very um, exciting because yeah, I, I am sort of interested in, in where um, legal technology will turn out mm-hmm. because everyone's, I think not only in the legal sector, but of course in a lot of different other business sectors, everyone's trying to utilize technology and somehow like move um, certain tasks away from human input so that can, um, can be like for cost saving reasons or like time saving reasons and as that evolves we have to think about regulation issues and anything that could potentially come out as ethical issues as well so it's definitely very very interesting yeah but isn't it so nice now that we can get the technologies to do the laborious work for us and we can have more time to focus on more the creative and the more tasks that really require human touch emotional intelligence i think it's more interesting for us to spend our time doing these and leveraging technology to do the other work yeah definitely and so would you say law students now should probably get a better understanding of of how technology will influence their practice later on just so that they can um how do you say this like best apply their skills in the human sense um 
things that can't be replaced by machines? Yes, definitely. I think, yes, um, and not just law students, any student, to be honest, any professional should be understanding at least the basics of technology. You don't need to go into much depth into it. Like, we're lawyers, we, I mean, some lawyers can be coders, but we're not, you know, necessarily program developers. We don't need to know specifics, but it's not to know, okay, what are the tasks that will be, that can be taken, and even how can I let the technology take this task so I can focus on other types of tasks, right? Like, just having this connection with clients, which is very important, um, and any other, we, we still need human judgment. Like, we have so many discretionary terms and contracts, you can't let machines decide that. That's why we can't have fully autonomous contracts, right? It's, you still need some human um, judgment to decide. So we won't be replaced, but obviously some of the tasks we gladly won't have to do anymore because we have machines doing for us. Um, and yeah, we'll be able to focus on more exciting things. Yeah, definitely. Like Discovery, how it's been more um, transformed by the use of technology, whereas maybe in the old days without any computers, you just have to be looking oh through a lot gosh. of documents. Yes. So yes, definitely. And when you were talking about lawyers being coders, were you talking about Raymond's son? Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yes, he is the one. Oh, um, I told, I'll, I'll have to tell him um, to listen to this podcast. He's just, I don't know how he does it. Like, I don't think he sleeps. It's like, he all, he's also like a hip hop dancer. So, whew, maybe I'll bring him to salsa. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that, like a lawyer, a programmer, a hip hop dancer, a salsa dancer. No, I'm sure I'm sure you're very multi talented as well. You just <laughs> didn't say any. <laughs> no, not like that. Um, so actually let's talk about your extensive extracurricular and co curricular activities now that we're on the topic. Um, so some key ones that I, I noted on your profile were being an undergraduate research fellow. So I think that was back in Brazil, yes. was it? Yeah. And how was that uh, like? Oh, it was intensive. Um, so uh, I started my third year of law degree. I was very into public international law. Um, so I just decided to do some research on... So I tried to combine my interest in international, public international law and criminal law. And we had this um, different type of offense, which is desacato which is similar somehow to contempt, but it can happen outside of the court. It can happen, for example, when against any um, pub, like any employee from a public sector. So if you are in a public school and you call your professor, oh, you're such a stupid person. I don't know, like, obviously that doesn't raise the bar to be held in, you know, there's a cartoon, but it's definitely something that could lead, not that, but other things that you can say or just do against like any public officer. Um, for example, when I was working at the federal, no, not the federal prosecution, but when I was working at the public defender's office, there was a case where this old lady spat on uh, this police officer and then she was sentenced six months in jail um, because of this offense, right, this capital, um, which I just think it's just so disproportionate. Um, it's, and you have other types of 
can criminalize other types of conducts. Um, but then I just thought it was over criminalizing and just then I just did some research on how this would not be in line with some international comments that Brazil did. Um, but again, Brazil is also a dualist country. We adopt the incorporation approach. So if you don't make it a law inside the country, domestic courts won't enforce um, the domestic courts won't enforce the conventions. And the case was the American Convention of um, Human Rights. So it's just not enforceable. And then. But there's also other interpretation issues that I got from jurisprudence of other courts and how they interpreted whether disacato, which is the offense I'm talking about, um, it goes actually against human rights. And but then again, um, this is something that I find frustrating international law. It's just the lack of enforceability. And through my research, I even went to the Hague. The Hague Academy of International Law and talk to the International Court of Justice judge. Um, there's even like a Cansado Trindade, which is a Brazilian judge in the ICJ and ask his opinion about it. So it was really interesting to do this research and but at the same time it is saddening that you know international law still has this um, status um, in I would say in the global community, I think it's changing, but we still need, uh, you know, like the incorporation within the internal domestic legal system. Yeah, and so that would be similar to Australia in, in yeah. the dualist system. Uh, I can see that how um, that would be frustrating because mm. you can see that a, a, a country has acceded to a certain treaty and said, okay, we acknowledge that this is important and we agree to it, but then they don't go and enact it in, in their own legislation, which doesn't mean anything. That is so, correct. Yeah. Um, and then also you founded the International Law Society. So was that within your time um, doing your law degree at Brazil as well? Yeah, that's right. Um, that was my final year of law school. Um, just because I know here in Australia you have different types of societies, but back in Brazil like we didn't have that many. Um, and then I just thought, because it, international law seems like a, a not very practical, not you know you don't really practice international law when you go and do your clerkships, when you do when you go and do internships. There's a lot more scope for international law when it when it comes to research, but there are other legal careers within the international law that you can actually use your uh, international law knowledge. So I just wanted a forum, like a like a place, a group of people that could facilitate that, like bring the international law knowledge within not just the law school, but in the community, like in, in the region. Um, and I think that was, very successful more than I expected. Uh, within three months of just talking to people and trying to recruit people for the International Law Society, which we call Núcleo de Estudos de Direito de Ribeirão Preto, Núcleo de Estudos de Direito Internacional de Ribeirão Preto, Nigeria. Uh, we have around 40 members in three months of recruiting. We organize so many research groups, but also um, not just research, but 
training people to advise clients on the international law aspects of their issues, right? And if it's international commerce or other areas, um, as well as a lot of events uh, with big um, names in the legal industry, not just um, nationally in Brazil, but also internationally. Um, so it was it was an amazing experience, and it was I, I'm just very glad that I took that step, even though it sounded very daunting to start something from scratch, um, and yeah, there was nothing alike, and just trying to see how other countries would do these societies and or other places in Brazil, and you know, try to adapt to the reality within our law school and our community. Um, and then make it happen. I think it requires a lot of, you know, energy and good people as well that really were there and still kept the society going. So, yeah, no, it's fantastic. It's not just, um, it's a great thing for the community, but definitely like a growing experience for me, not just academically, but also professionally. Yeah, definitely societies can can really um, bring you out of your shell. And when you were talking about it being a daunting experience, I think that due to the success as well, um, you can see that a lot of your efforts have not gone to waste, um, and that's excellent. And it's really great that it was so successful in in the first few months. Um, So congratulations on that. Um, Let's also talk about athletics. I think also on... Um, your LinkedIn I saw when you were in high school you did cheerleading as well (laughs) a lot of a lot of different athletics um, events I did um, yes so for athletics it was definitely I think a very intense experience um, during my law school to also do you know as many students do here just have these commitments with the law school, but also like professional commitments and also in sports, right? And when you're doing it competitively, it can be a bit more stressing. And, but for me, it was ever, it was both stressing. It was also most exciting part of my day to just, you know, do something different to what I do and the entire of the rest of my day, which is law. So um, I did it for four years. Um, I yeah, I um, did athletics. I was a four hundred meters runner competitively for four years. I was also the sports director, which is similar to a team captain. Um, so it wasn't an easy start, actually. Um, when I did my first four hundred meters run, uh, just before. I start my um, my sprint. This guy just looked at me and he was like, "You're just too short to run." Uh, I know horrible, um, but it was like, "I'm gonna prove you wrong." But then I went and I started running and I fell. I fell in my first <laughs> competition, so that was really embarrassing. And you know, I think a lot of people. I wanted to give up at that time. Did not want to, you know, stand up again and finish the race. No, I just want to stay there. But I think instead, what I did was 
just to train harder, like not give up just because maybe I'm not genetically benefit by my height, but you know, that doesn't mean I can't train harder, I can't, you know, do my best and just really motivate myself to um, practice, practice um, harder and that's what I did. I did not give up and then a year later I did won that same championship and then the guy called me too short so I was like I'm gonna prove you wrong um, and then also won different medals so I think yeah um, those four or five years was really important for me because I don't think that I only built the physical endurance and tracks I I also think that I built the mental resilience out of tracks that now I use it as a way to, you know, not give up and face of adversities and just keep going and we only fail when we stop trying. So I'm very grateful for yeah, my experience in athletics, even though I'm not a competitive athlete anymore, but the lessons I'll take forever. Yeah, and I think that's definitely an excellent personal trait of yours when I can see from your different experiences where you've gone to do something that you haven't done before and then if you, you know, uh, come across any setbacks, you just get up and continue going yeah. and that's actually made you such an amazing person and I'm sure so many people look up to you as a role model because of that. So it's really amazing to hear all of this. What are your future plans? So any qualifications other than in the Australian jurisdiction because you're already qualified in Brazil and a lot of people I think are excited about getting second um, triple qualifications uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually I'm I'm planning to stay in Australia and continue practicing here as a commercial lawyer but having said that um, I'm open-minded about future opportunities. Like I'm excited about doing international secondment option or also, um, I don't know, who knows, maybe doing a PhD in an area. I'm not too sure about that right now after doing nine years of studying law, but definitely I'm not ruling out anything just yet. Um, but I'm happy practicing law here. I find that Australia is my home now. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and some, finally, some tips on performing well or performing better at law school because you've done amazing in your academics as well as having so many extracurriculars. Um, so are there any tips on performing well or making the most of law school? Um, I'd say first thing, it's be pragmatic. Um, just be realistic with your goals. You can't possibly do all the readings. I hope my tutors are not listening to that, <laughs> but you just, you, you can't, you can't, and you have to be realistic, and this is in in the legal practice as well, right? Your client's going to ask you to um, give them, like, an advice on something. You're not going to have all the time in the world to do this um, research and do all the readings possible, right? You have to be wise with what you choose to do with your time, to just be resourceful. Like, what can I, what do I have to do? And what can I do? And be realistic with it. Like, 
it's not about how much you know, it's what you do, what you know. So I find that a lot of people, they try to just know everything, do it all. And when you try to do it all, you do nothing. So time management, prioritizing, it's very important. Um, you know, yes, I have 500 pages to read, but what's going to be covered, you know, map out a plan because at the end of the day, no one knows everything and we're not expected to know everything. Maybe we are, but you know, you, you shouldn't expect that from yourself. Um, so definitely be realistic, use time management skills and I don't know, do a lot of planning. I use Todoist, any apps that you find um, useful. I would say second, um, ask questions. Don't be afraid to make mistakes and you know ask for help this is how we grow this is how we learn a lot of people you know they say there's no such thing as silly questions which i think i disagree there are some silly questions i mean i was asked whether brazil was real i think that's a silly question <laughs> but i think even sillier than silly questions is I think you're silly if you don't make the questions, right? Because how are you going to not be silly anymore? How are you going to actually learn and know about it and leave that ignorance on? So I do ask questions, ask for help. Um, and I find that here in Australia, the teachers and the students, they're very approachable. They're really willing to um, help you out. So that's a good thing. Um, third, I would say have fun. Have fun. It doesn't matter if it's in the middle of your exams. I find that when I go out and dance and enjoy myself, even if it's in the middle of exams week, I'm just so much less stressed. And when we're less stressed, when we're just, you know, like feeling better, we just perform better. Right? So, you know, just go out and shake your booty and, you know, it doesn't have to be dancing, you can go surfing, although I think it's a bit dangerous, there's too many sharks in Australia. Um, or, I don't know, just go and talk to people, sing in the shower, do whatever you want to get that endorphins running. And, uh, because they're really important and I think that a lot of people I see, they forget this important part, like which is the process, right? Now, don't over focus on the outcome. Enjoy, enjoy your law degree, because then I feel like a lot of people they actually regret about not enjoying it enough while it was happening. It's like it's you know when we're still young and we have that energy to enjoy ourselves, make friends, and um, make life a bit lighter. I'm saying that, but I'm actually like very anxious all the time. I'm like, oh my gosh, exams are coming. <laughs> but um, definitely when I try to enjoy myself, and I think that everyone should do it, um, life is not just life, it's easier, but you enjoy more yourself. And as a consequence, you do better at uni, you perform better. And yeah, I, I tend to get the better grades when I'm being more holistic and not just 
focusing. So yeah, go shake your booty. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> I really enjoyed speaking with you today, Mimi. Thank you for guesting on Insight. Thank you for listening to Insights by UNSW Law Society. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. Thank you.